Please take your Bibles this evening. Thank you for joining me in prayer. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke 22. Last time we were together in Luke 22, we considered Jesus and his arrest and principles for the day of fear. This week, we, uh, it's, it's a natural extension of that. In fact, this was originally one sermon. There was just too much content, so I had to break it up into two. Last time, we studied Jesus' betrayal by one who loved him and, or who he loved and, and who he cared for, but who did not requite that love, Judas Iscariot. It was not exactly a message of great encouragement, but I also did not want it to be a message of hopelessness. I hope you did not take it as such. We are going to maintain a sort of a sad, well, somber tone, not just this week, but over the next several weeks. Uh, and we should expect this, right? Because we're into a passage of Scripture that is about what we might very well consider to be the darkest hours in human history. It's already been a long night for the disciples as we step into Luke 22, verse 54. They slept rather than prayed in the garden because of their emotional exhaustion from the day, but their failure to pray had consequences, and those consequences are going to come to full fruition in our time together this evening. Jesus has been arrested, having been betrayed by Judas Iscariot, and we pick up in Luke 22, verse 54, where we read this. Then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. The him that we're speaking of here is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, and they take Jesus and they lead him, the text says, into the high priest's house. Seeing that this is a religious matter, first and foremost, the Jewish authorities would make the high priest their first stop. So the Roman government gave the, the Jewish government, as it were, a pretty good amount of latitude. Uh, the, the Roman government did not ask the, the Jewish leadership to pass all of these religious things through them. They would allow much of this to be settled simply by the Jewish leaders themselves, the council that we call the Sanhedrin. However, in this case, the Jews would need Rome. And they would need Rome because what they are seeking this evening and into this morning is the death penalty. And while there were many consequences that could be meted out individually, one of the things that was not allowed would be the death of someone without Roman approval. So they are going to begin the process of finding the charges with which they can cause Jesus to be accused before Rome and so killed. Off they go to the house of the high priest in order to initiate this, these devious court proceedings. And immediately we need to clear up a little bit of a discrepancy with this account uh, as found in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and as um, contrasted with the book of John. In John 18, verses 13 through 24, as we read this account, we read this. And led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews, and it was ex uh, that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest, and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, 
Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servant and officer stood there, who had made a fire of coals, and it was, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them, and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. So in this passage, we find almost a seeming contradiction within the passage itself, and then a seeming contradiction with the other Gospels, in that John tells us that Jesus was led initially to Annas, who was the father, uh, excuse me, Ananias, there we go, who was the father-in-law to the high priest, who was Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, we know, has been the high priest for some time within the ministry of Jesus and within uh, the, the, the three and a half years that he ministered. Uh, so and Ananias did the, excuse me, it's Annas. <laughs> I'm going to confuse everyone. Annas, not Ananias. Annas. Uh, Annas did the initial interrogation after which he was conducted to Caiaphas, which we see here right at the end, who did the deeper interrogation and he had to approve uh, through Inquisition before then it could be sent to Rome. Uh, even in this passage, verse 19 tells us that the high priest asked these questions of Jesus when in fact it was Annas asking the questions and afterwards he was sent to the high priest who is Caiaphas. So one might say, well, we have a great contradiction here. Annas is said to be the high priest, uh, but, but then he's not the high priest. He's the father-in-law to the high priest who is Caiaphas, who was the high priest What's going on here? And the answer to this controversy is actually in Luke itself. In Luke, all the way back in Luke chapter 3, verse 2. Of course, you remember that sermon I preached, right? Uh, it was a long time ago. It's like uh, over two years ago. Um, uh, so you, you probably don't remember. Uh, I probably don't remember. But I did preach in Luke 3 at one time. And when I preached in Luke 3 at one time, we read this in verse 2. Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priests... The word of God came unto John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So we find here that both Annas and Caiaphas are called the high priest. Now, this is a rewind about three years earlier, three and a half years earlier, to the days of John the Baptist and his ministry, beginning John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And we see in the historian's text that they regarded both Annas and Caiaphas as the high priests, even though at this point one was officially the high priest and the other was not. So it would have gone this way. In history, we find that Annas had stepped down from the more pressing duties of the official high priest capacity. The authority had been transferred to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. However, Annas was still, as it were, an honorary high priest, retaining much of the authority of the high priesthood informally. And uh, so in some ways we might call him the deputy or the assistant to the high priest, to Caiaphas, also called a high priest. And this is not uncommon in Jewish history. In the days of David, both Zadok 
and Abiathar were called high priests, even though the high priest was only one office and only one man could officially hold that title. And we see that in 2 Samuel 15, verse 35, that they were both called the high priest. One of them was officially the high priest. The other maintained a authority by extension, as it were, and would effectively be the vice high priest um, with the high priest's authority. And we can trace this structure through several generations of Israel's history and the nation of Judah, where multiple men had the title, though technically speaking, only one of the men had the authority. Now, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't touch on this. They simply ignore the difference and they state that Jesus was brought to the house of the high priest, that he stood before the high priest. Uh, That's not a problem. It's fine. It's not historically inaccurate. Simply put, however, uh, because John is more specific, people read that and they say, well, what's going on here? Is there a contradiction? No contradiction, just a quirk, just a quirk of Jewish culture that would allow both of them to be labeled high priests and then at other times only one of them to be labeled high priest. So back in our Luke passage, uh, verse 54 tells us that Peter was following afar off and having just read in John 18, we know that Peter was not the only disciple. We know that John, the other disciple, uh, who never names himself in the Gospel of John, but who is very likely the one who is there, that John was following as well. And so John is following, Peter is following, and they go into the compound, as it were, the house of the high priest, Annas, and um, John is able to get in because he knows the high priest. He has connections to the high priest. Peter is not, but then Peter goes to the door, and he, he vouches for Peter, and Peter is able to come into the general outskirts of the assembly, where then we find him gathered around that fire that we'll talk about in just a moment. So Peter follows afar off. Verses 56 and 50, uh, 55 and 56 tell us this. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. So this is that fire that John said that was, was lit and they were warming themselves because it was a cold night. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with him. So Peter sits down around this fire with a group of people and we, we know, we'll, we'll see this in a moment, that he is within eyeshot of Jesus. We don't know if he was explicitly within earshot, but we know that he could see Jesus, that he was close enough to be able to see him, and he is around this fire. He is keeping an eye on the proceedings. We do not know where John is for these events, but no doubt the people were speaking of the events at hand, um, and no doubt they were wondering exactly what was happening. At this point, a maid looks at Peter, as we read in John, and says, this man was also with him. This is one of the guys that was with him. Points to Peter as a man, probably from whom information could be gleaned, right? You can tell us what's going on here. And Peter's attempt to blend in and remain anonymous thus has failed. Now, let's take a moment and understand what what exactly is going on here. Judas Iscariot, remember, he's off staring at his 30 pieces of silver in abject self-loathing. Peter and John have followed Jesus into the city, followed Jesus into Annas' house. Peter is around this fire. John, we don't know exactly where he is in these proceedings. The other nine disciples are nowhere to be found. John is uh, the only uh, uh, one of the disciples uh, who, to this point, well, John and Peter are the only two that have not explicitly forsaken Christ 
And then at this point, we're going to see Peter go through his denial process. So Peter denies Christ. He doesn't forsake Christ physically. He's still there. But he will deny Christ quite openly. And so we read in verses 57 through 60. They just questioned, this is one of them, right? The maid said that. Verse 57, and he denied him, saying, woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, thou art also of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after, another confidently affirmed, saying, of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. We record the three instances of Peter's denial here in fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy. The first is from this maid who looked at Peter, and Peter said, Woman, I do not know him. Blatant denial. The second was a man a little while later who said, You're one of them. And he said, Man, I am not one that was of them. The third was about an hour or so later, uh, a confident affirmation. Jesus is still being tried. They say he is one of them. He must be. He is a Galilean. There's not a lot of those around here. Peter doubles down on his denial, saying, I know not what thou sayest, insisting he had no association with Christ. The Bible tells us that while he was yet speaking, the cock crew. Now, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago in, uh, about the discrepancy, though not a contradiction in Mark. In Mark, the cock crows twice, the second crow being at the third denial. Um, there was once after his first denial, then the second denial, and then the cock crew again after his third denial. Uh, we mentioned that already. I'm not going to cover that again, but I do remind you that there is that discrepancy that it's not a contradiction. It's just Mark adds something that the other Gospels do not. But what I would like to do is I would like for us to take a moment and to walk through the Matthew account of this same set of circumstances to understand the, if I can just say it this way, the conviction with which Peter denies Christ. In this passage, we see, okay, his first one is, no, I don't know him. The second one is, I don't know what you're talking about. The third is, I don't know what you're talking about. So it, 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 it records the denials, but the denials seem, if, if I can put it this way, somewhat innocuous. They're, they're not, we, we don't get the fullest grasp of the emotion with, with, with which Peter puts himself into these denials. Uh, but we do read about that in Matthew 26. Verses 69 through 74. And why we're doing this is to understand that this is not just passive denial. This is Peter vehemently, openly, directly, purposefully, even going so far as um, verbally, violently <laughs> um, denying Christ. So we read in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 69. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. With an oath this time, right? And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech Berea thee. In other words, he spoke like a Galilean. It would be like 
if you had a, a bunch of Southerners who came up to Minnesota and they would, you know, their speech would, would rather stick out, right? I know that you're one of his because he's a Galilean and you're a Galilean. He's a Southerner and you're a Southerner and there's not too many more of those around here. Uh, I know you're one of his. And, he, and again, uh, uh, he says, as we see here, then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. Uh, so in the Matthew account, we find the, 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 the public nature of his first denial. And, and then we find that during his second denial, he denied with an oath, something with which Jesus in his teachings has directly told his disciples that they ought not to do. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said, uh, by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black, but let your communications be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. We'll talk more about this in a moment. During the third denial, the text says that Peter began to curse and to swear that he did not know Jesus. Uh, when Jesus taught to let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, he was compelling his followers to make their words mean something. That in a world where words mean little to nothing, our words should mean something. In that, Peter felt compelled to breach Christ's teachings in order to add weight to his statements is not a, re uh, a revelation necessarily of the strength of his position or of his integrity, but rather of the weakness of his position, right? That he felt as though he had to bolster it with the things that Christ has explicitly asked him not to do. Again, we'll come back to this in a moment. The reason why we came to Matthew more specifically, however, is to see the weight that Peter threw behind these denials. This is not just tendential. This is not just him uh, kind of uh, saying, well, you know, whispering, I, I don't know much. This is him openly, flatly, boldly, vehemently saying, no, I am not associated with this man. I don't know this man. I, I want nothing to do with this man. It was not just a matter of fact refusal. It could not be taken as a misunderstanding or a confusion. He was denying association with the Lord Jesus Christ here, exactly as Jesus said he would. Now, we talked about this uh, several weeks ago. We talked about the difference between denying Christ and being a Christ denier, right? And the fact that God would restore all of those who forsook him, Jesus who uh, Peter who denied him, and that this was a restorative thing, um, that the only one who was a Christ denier was, in fact, the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot. So Peter has just denied the Lord three times. The cock crows, and we read in verse 61, in my mind, as far as emotionally, perhaps one of the most emotionally impacting narrative verses in our Bible. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. You can perhaps imagine this moment. Peter is warming himself by that fire. It has been an hour now. The first two denials came very quickly. Then there's an hour gap. And now the third denial takes place. He begins to curse and to swear and to, to say, I do not know this man. 
and then the cock crows, triggers in his mind, he looks up, and, and Jesus, in the midst of this trial, turns and looks and makes eye contact with Peter in that moment. I'm tempted to say that none can perhaps imagine the weight of that moment. And indeed, none of us has ever had to look directly into the eyes of the living Christ at our moment of denial. I think if we could, it might change things a little bit. But at the same time, perhaps that's a presumptuous statement because many of us have felt the weight of such choices. Many of us have felt the disappointment in our hearts knowing that we have done exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ has asked us not to do and what our conscience has told us not to do. So the Lord looks at Peter, makes eye contact with him. Peter remembers what the Lord said. Peter recognizes that he has did the exact same thing that just a few hours earlier he thought was absolutely inconceivable. I will follow you, he told Jesus, even unto death. And here, in, on three occasions where death certainly would not have been the result, he did not even have the courage and the fortitude to associate himself with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter finds here, knowing what he had done. He was not the pretender who had betrayed Jesus into the hands of evil men. He was not one of the nine who had forsaken Christ and fled in the moment of temptation. He came, he stood near the Lord, he watched as the sham trial took place. But in the moment of his own temptation, in the moment of his own trial, having been told to watch and pray lest he fall into this temptation and having not watched and prayed, being not ready for the temptation that would come upon him, he deliberately he boldly and he vehemently denied knowing or caring about Christ. He had, without question, failed. And what did Peter do in this moment of failure? We read in verse 62. It'll be our final verse this evening. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. You can perhaps imagine the devastation in Peter's heart at what he had done. He had fallen, he had failed, he had looked in the face of the Lord, having known his, his failure. He had done the very thing he was sure he would not. He had done the very thing he was determined that he could not. And he wept bitterly. We apply this evening. And the title of the sermon is Principles for the Day of Failure. We, we will come to failure in just a moment and we'll wrap this up. But before that, I have a couple of other things I want to talk about. First, I want to talk about words. We live in a vulgar society, a very vulgar society. Furthermore, we live in a society that lacks integrity generally. Neither of these attributes are becoming to the saints of the Most High. We consider the words of Jesus already calling upon those who followed him not to swear but rather to let their yea be yea and their nay be nay. The idea behind this is that our words ought to mean something, that we should not have to heighten our words with oaths in order to be believed, that when we say things, those around us ought to be able to trust us and know implicitly that what we are saying to the best of our knowledge and ability is something that is true. Now, there are several levels of... Um, of the, the 
of several different scenarios in which our integrity could be questioned, and not all of them are explicitly wrong. In other words, uh, first there is teasing, right? That there are certain people who tend to um, tease a lot when a person will wonder if you're speaking the truth because you have a track record of saying things just to get a rise out of people. And if you say things to get a rise out of people to see their reaction and whatnot, then there's going to be a tendency on the hearts and, and in the lives of those who know you best that when you first say something, they are going to immediately have to pass it through the tease filter, right? The, is this person serious? Because they often say things quite seriously that are not at all serious. And this is not necessarily a bad thing within balance, right? But I do encourage you to keep it in balance and with perspective and to be careful that you are not so indiscriminate with your joking and with your teasing that those who don't know you or even those who do know you are not able to ever really take you seriously. We even have a very well-known Aesop's fable about this danger, right, called the boy who cried wolf. And the boy thought it was a really great thing to cry wolf and to see the reaction of people when he did so. So the, the fable briefly goes like this. There's a boy that is commissioned in part to watch the sheep at night and he gets perhaps a little bit bored and he decides that he's going to cry out that there is a wolf. He is going to sound the alarm because he enjoys seeing the people get all up in a, a tizzy about there being a wolf and getting together and, and this was entertaining to him. So he does this and, and there is no wolf so the people uh, go back and they're finished and then he does this again and he, he forms a track record of not being trustworthy through his teasing, through his joking and such and then there is an evening where a wolf is actually found among the flock and he cries wolf and nobody comes because nobody believes him because he is not somebody that people feel as though is trustworthy. Not implicitly because he did not want to be trustworthy. This is not the, the person who is just in, in, inherently just a, a liar, but he is someone who likes to, who likes to get a rise out of people. And at some point people will just stop reacting. We need to be careful that we don't lose our credibility through excessive jesting, through excessive foolishness. So that's that first level. The second level that we might talk about is um, silly common phrases that we often add in order to add emphasis to our point. Um, one of the ones that was popular in my day, I think it's still popular today, uh, it was popular uh, uh, when I was in high school, is people saying something and then they say, I'm not going to lie. And that's a phrase that they often put in, I'm not going to lie. And the idea is, in, in the same way, it is a minor sort of an oath. It's a minor sort of an idea of trying to add a level of, of heightened validity to what you're going to say. I guess whenever I hear someone say, I'm not going to lie, um, I think, well, are, do you have to tell me you're not going to lie for me to assume you're not going to lie? Or can I just assume that you're not going to lie? There's almost a euphemistic impl implication that you should believe me because this is one of those times that I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie about this. Well, wh when are you going to lie to me? Could you just write a list of when you're going to lie to me so that I can have that one handy? Uh, or, or should I just assume that if you don't add, I'm not going to lie to the end of my phrase that you, you are willing to lie about this and then I have to decide if you're going to lie to me or not about this. Uh, that idea is, is simply kind of and I don't know if there's a different one today. They've always been around. Um, 
we ought to be able to guard, uh, we, we ought to be able to say things and, and uh, say things in such a way that we don't have to convince people that we're telling the truth. And if we have a right testimony, you should never have to convince someone that you're telling the truth unless it's something extremely unique where they, they just, you know, it's unbelievable, right? Third, and as we move up the ladder, we get to actual oaths proper, right? An oath, when the Bible talks about swearing, it's talking about oaths. An oath is when we invoke the authority or the power of something greater, higher, more important than us in order to add validity. When we talk about swearing today, normally we talk about words that have taken on a negative connotation in our culture, and we call those swear words. Uh, in, in a manner of speaking, that's fine. However, that's not the, the, the basis idea of what a swear word is, is not quite that the idea of a swear word is that you are using a word uh, that that is uh, important to your culture to invoke a level of importance to your speech. It's not just what we see today, which is that people just talk and talk and talk and, and, and say words just to get reactions out of people. So the idea of swearing is invoking some authority or something more important than you in order to validate your statement. Uh, I swear to God, or I swear on the grave of so-and-so, or I swear on my children. We don't say many of those today as far as, uh, you know, our culture does not swear on our children or on our dead grandparents or whatever, but our our culture still does swear to God quite regularly, don't they? Uh, And this idea is that I am invoking God's knowledge of me to validate that I'm telling the truth. That's why you put your hand on a Bible in the court and you you say, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. You're swearing to God. You are giving an oath that, invoking an oath that says, if I am telling the truth, here's what I know, God is watching. And the funny thing is, our culture used to care about God, right? And so to swear to God, to invoke an oath to God used to actually mean something because our culture actually believed that God was watching and that if I'm making an oath to God and I misrepresent myself under oath, that it's not just that the courts could do something to me, but that God himself will hold me accountable for that. We don't give much credit to oaths today, though, and this this is a shame, but the Bible, as the Bible teaches that oaths are important, very important. I'm not going to get into the whole teaching on oaths today. I have done so on several occasions in the past. When, past, when we invoke an oath, the Bible, as, as far as the Bible teaches it, God holds us to those oaths. We've talked about the principles of that before. Uh, when a man swore an oath in Israel, it was binding. When a woman or a child swore an oath, their spiritual authority had to approve of that oath. So a wife or a daughter or a, or a son under the age of manhood, if, if they swore an oath and the father heard the oath, the father could invalidate that oath before God. If the father did not invalidate that oath before God, then that oath would immediately be valid in God's eyes. If he invalidated it, then that oath would not be valid. If a man swore an oath before God, it was binding. It was absolutely binding. In all cases, however, once the oath was set in the Old Testament economy, God held them to it. To this end, men are exhorted to be very careful with oaths. And the question is, how does that relate to us today? Well, we don't really know in full. 
Am I willing to, to stand before you today and say that as you think about all of the politicians and people that stand in courtroom and say, so help me God, and I swear to God, and, and, um, and such, am, am I able to look at you and say every single time that happens and they lie, which is more often than not, that God is holding them explicitly accountable? I don't know that we could prove that. And the New Testament does not tell us enough about oaths to explicitly say whether or not God's economy as it relates to oaths in the Old Testament has carried over into the New Testament. However, I would not be surprised. May I just say it that way? If God still holds men accountable for their oaths. I would not be surprised at all. And I would lean toward, this is personal, this is not, I can't take you to chapter and verse, but I would lean toward the understanding that when we make an oath to God, we'd better fulfill it. Now, there are things in the scriptures, New Testament, that say when you make an oath, be sure to fulfill it and such. Um, but, and again, I've preached on this before, but I would definitely lean toward that idea. And I would caution you in regard to oaths that you make before God. Matthew 5, we've read it already. Jesus says, just don't swear oaths. Don't invoke a higher authority. Don't even invoke yourself in an oath. Just let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Stand upon the truth. Have a testimony of truth so that when you say something, people don't have to ask you for proof of uh, of uh, vi uh, verbal proof. In other words, people don't have to wait until you swear on, swear to God or swear on your, your ancestors or swear on your children or swear on whatever it is they want you to swear on before they believe you. That when you say something, they would believe you until they have proof otherwise. James 5.12 does teach us this. Above all these things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by, by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Interesting that word condemnation there. Do you see what it actually means? It means hypocrisy. It's the word hypocrites. It is not the word for judgment. It is not the word for condemnation explicitly. It's the word for hypocrisy. So the warning is not that if I swear an oath that God will bring me into condemnation per se, but what it does mean is that if I swear an oath and then for some reason something does not work out, then I, am, I fall into hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is the enemy of the Christian testimony in every way and in every sense. Far better for you to be a blatant, own your own sin, own your own lies, than for you to be a hypocritical Christian. By swearing an oath, invoke, an oath, invoking a higher power, we have placed ourselves in an unwise position on two counts. First, we imply that, again, simply by swearing an oath, our word is better than if we didn't swear the oath. That should not be. There's no reason why our words should be better because I've sworn an oath than not. People should simply know I'm telling the truth. Second, we run a higher risk of becoming hypocritical if for some reason we are able to follow through with our oath. It's a risk we simply don't need to take lest we fall into hypocrisy. And fourth and finally, as we consider our words, we've talked about jesting, we've talked about little euphemisms of the day, we've talked about oaths and swearing. The final thing that we saw Peter do is cursing. Cursing is when you invoke words 
that wish ill upon a person or thing, seeking to invoke supernatural powers to inflict harm. We often hear this today in relation generally to hell and to damnation and to such. Uh, most of the dirty words that we have today are either uh, invoking God in some way or are invoking evil and, and, and that which is, is corrupt in some way. And those we would, we would call that cursing, uh, literally the same idea as supernaturally, you know, the voodoo doll type stuff, trying to bring about supernatural, invoking supernatural evil upon a person. Now, we don't often think about cursing this way. Or, or it's used without any person or thing directly in mind, but it is all the same thing. Cursing is a sure sign that a person does not have the capacity or the willingness to form coherent thoughts or expressions, so he fills his communication with cursings as a means of compensating for the fact that his words do not stand up to any sort of thought or scrutiny. In other words, people that curse regularly are people whose words do not stand on their own two feet. Let us not be among them. In many ways, cursing is the crutch of the ignorant, the uninformed, and the vulgar. They seek to gain by shock value a level of credibility that they cannot gain by their lifestyle, their actions, and their testimony. So because they can't gain it by who they are, they have to gain it through shock value. Their integrity, their work ethic, their testimony, it's not enough because they're simply vulgar people. And of this form of communication, the Lord is quite clear. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. When it comes to speech, let us never... Forget two things. First, you and I are, as born-again believers, constant testimonies for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you say can make a big difference because if we are not upright in our communication, we will fall into hypocrisy. People will say, this is what he says, but this is what I've heard him say. This is what he claims. This is what his Bible claims. But he's gone along with those jokes. He's said the same things. I know what he says in secret. I know what came out of his mouth in that moment of shock. It ought not be numbered among us. Second, you and I are supposed to be not just testimonies of the Lord Jesus Christ toward others, but we are supposed to be like Christ, right? Conform to the image of Christ. And this ought to matter to us. Not because if we fail, we'll lose some sort of spiritual standing with God. We won't go to heaven or a lightning bolt will come down and zap us. Although, I, again, I do warn you that I do believe oaths still carry a weight today, personal belief. But because Jesus died so that we don't have to fail. And every time we do, as the redeemed, it's because we've chosen ourselves over him. Let us watch our words. We are in a society that has failed to be able to allow their words to stand on their own two feet. Whether it's politicians, whether it's uh, well-known athletes or um, well-known people in culture, and even in many, among many pastors and teachers, 
of the faith. Their words do not stand on their own two feet and they must invoke the vulgar, the common, in order to bring the shock value and the validity that it would seemingly bring with it. Let us not be named among those. Second, first about words. Second, let's talk about association. Peter denied an association here, an association with Christ. Peter did not lose his salvation, and we know that he is clean. A salvation which we know from many accounts that all the disciples, save for Judas Iscariot, had obtained. John 13 makes this clear. We've spoken before of this, but it bears repeating in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Similar statements are made in Mark 8, 38, Luke 9, 26, Luke 12, verse 8, 2 Timothy 2, 12. All speak to the reality that Christ will deny those who deny him. But we must, uh, we, 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 have, we have carefully made a distinction between the one who denies an association due to a failing of personal fortitude and courage and the one who denies the lordship of Christ or is ashamed of the person and the work of Christ. The fear of openly associating with Christ is one, um, or being timid of our testimony of Christ. These are things which are not uncommon among believers. It's very different from a refusal to acknowledge Christ and his message and his work. We even read it in our missionary letter. Uh, missionary Friesen said, please pray for so-and-so who has the fear of man and so will not come to church because of what it would mean for his community. Does that mean that he's not a believer because he fears the ramifications of coming to this church in the community? It does not explicitly mean that. The very fear of open association with Christ if it was a statement of perdition, then we would understand some of Paul's teachings in, in, in kind of a confusing light. In 2 Timothy chapter six, or excuse me, chapter one, verses six through eight, Paul writes this to Timothy, who is his son in the faith and who was a pastor. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, that word meaning timidity but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. So Paul is warning Timothy here to be willing to partake in the afflictions. He's warning him not to have the spirit of, of fear, of timidity, to not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now of all things, Paul testifies quite clearly of Timothy being a child of God, right? Of Timothy being in the faith. And yet Paul still had a valid concern that Timothy, as a pastor, as a leader of men, would fall short at times, and he's exhorting his brother in Christ and his co-laborer in the gospel to maintain a strong and a fervent zeal and uh, courage to represent the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Peter did here, now obviously the degree to which he did it, we'll talk about that in a moment, was extreme. But the idea of the fear of man in your heart to where you would struggle to speak up at times is not something that is foreign to the believer. It's not to say that you are an unbeliever because you have the fear of man, because you're, you, you are timid in the face of certain opportunities for you to reflect your faith. 
There's a difference between being timid and opportunities to reflect your faith. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a right thing or that we should write it off. We should say, I'm okay with this, right? Paul tells Timothy, don't be this way. But I'm also telling you it is not explicitly a sign that you are outside of Christ. What would be? Well, if you're absolutely unwilling in in circumstances to claim the name of Christ. It's one thing for me to not want to go from door to door to door knocking on the door, testimony of Christ, the, the fear of man that might come from that. It's one thing to be in a group of people and to uh, feel like you ought to speak up for Christ and then not to do it. It's another thing if someone comes up to you and says, hey, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And you say, no, 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 no. No, he's not Lord. He's not God. He's not this. He's not that. That's a whole different level, right? That's a different thing. Let us not think that because we are not speaking of salvation and damnation, the the association is of little worth. The very opposite is true. And in this we find the most heart-wrenching of realities that Jesus took his association with sinful humanity all the way to his death, a death which he knew would be the end result of his association with humanity. And Peter, on the other hand, perhaps the most zealous of Christ's followers, was unwilling to take his association with Jesus Christ even to an unknown end. And when we think about it this way, that Christ was willing to associate with you to the extent that he took your sin on the cross. Again, in order that we don't minimize this, far be it from us to reject any association with him. What I'd like for us to consider together for a few moments is just how important association with Christ is to God. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says this, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is to this very end, it is for this very reason that our testimony is so important, because testimony and association go hand in hand. If I have a testimony of righteousness, but not a public association, the God of righteousness does not get the glory for my testimony of righteousness. If I am just a good person in my neighborhood and nobody knows that I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord Jesus Christ does not get the glory for me being a good person in my neighborhood. If I am a good person at work, an honest person at work, a hard worker at work, but I do not have an association. Now, that uh, obviously, that doesn't mean that I have to blatantly shout out my associations. But if I refuse to associate myself with Christ while living a good works type person, Christ is not getting the glory. He's not getting the glory. Association and testimony go hand in hand for this reason. Likewise, if I have a public association with Christ, but not the testimony of righteousness, then the name of God is blasphemed through me. Because people know I'm a follower of Christ, but they also know what I say and I do. And they don't match. So Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19, a few verses after what we read before, Nevertheless, the foundation of God's stand is sure having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. So we know that. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Because you're naming the name of Christ, you better live it. We're called to associate ourselves with Christ 
the essence of the two ordinances of the church are association, are they not? Baptism, a public association with my belief in the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. Lord's Supper, a regular religious association with, the, the, with the, the, the blood, which is the testimony of the new covenant in Christ's blood with the, through, through the fruit of the vine and then the bread, which is the testimony of the body of Jesus Christ, which is broken for us. It's about association. And if we are to associate with Christ as we ought, then we better associate him with righteousness, lest the name of God be blasphemed through us. Final point. And here's where we get to our principles of failure. Principles for the day of failure. When Peter had fulfilled the words of the Lord, anticipating his failure and denial of Christ, he went out from the presence of the Lord, and the Bible tells us he wept bitterly. He felt full of the weight of the failure that was upon his shoulders, and perhaps only in such failures ourselves could we comprehend Peter's sorrow. But let us think about Christ in all of this. Christ's reaction to Peter's failure. Say, Pastor, all he did was turn and look at Peter. What more reaction could he have? He was busy getting falsely accused by the high priest. But let's gain some perspective here. Jesus' reaction to Peter's denial is not actually realized in Luke twenty-two fifty-two, when Jesus gazed upon Peter in that moment of failure. Jesus' reaction to Peter's denial is recorded more so in two other places. The first being 20 verses earlier in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, We studied this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus, God in flesh, veiled deity, looks ahead and sees Peter's failure. Jesus says, you're going to deny me. Peter says, absolutely not. I'm not going to deny you. What was Jesus' reaction the night before when he says, thou shalt deny me thrice? Was it, and then thou shalt be kickest to the curb? No. Was it to invalidate Peter's service? No. Remember what Jesus said in verse 32? But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus, looking ahead to Peter's moment of failure, when the cock would crow, when he would deny the Lord for the third time, he says in Peter, I have prayed for you. And then when you are restored after this failure, strengthen your brethren. As Peter felt the full weight of his failure at that moment, and even the weight of having disappointed his Lord, this we know as well. Jesus had not given up on Peter. Though Peter had denied Christ, Christ had not rejected him. He told Peter, when you are converted, when you return, and you will strengthen your brethren. Jesus loved Peter. Peter's actions did not change that. And may I just say this? Your actions don't change that either. Christ loves you. In spite, sometimes, of you. But he loves you nonetheless. Jesus was faithful to Peter. And Peter's unfaithfulness to Jesus did not change that. Do choices come with consequences? 
course they do. Sowing and reaping principle is one found all throughout Scripture. We do reap what we sow. There are certain choices in this life that always care with themselves consequences and some that just simply don't go away. There are certain failures which disqualify us from certain opportunities in this life. That's a part of living life and making choices. God isn't going to wipe away all earthly consequences just because of uh, restoration. He doesn't wipe away the earthly consequences of a felony record, right? He doesn't wipe away the ecclesiastical consequences of being more uh, the husband of more than one wife, right? There are some things that just they, they carry on. But so often in this life, we as humans feel as if when we fail God, we are unredeemable and therefore unusable. That because we have failed God in the past, we simply fall out of the determination or the understanding that God can or ever will use us again. And may I just say something about this mindset? And I I don't know if it's going to be what you would expect me to say in this mindset, but it's not wrong. Um, It's selfish. It's a very selfish. You, you want to think of it in terms of humility, that I'm sitting there saying, I'm a worm, I'm a wretch, there's nothing I can do, uh, God can't use me, and there's something that you, in, in the natural human tendency, there's almost something noble in that way of thinking, right? That I'm a wretch, that I, I am unusable, that I should just kick myself to the curb so God doesn't have to do it. But in fact, it is selfish, it does a disservice to the very work that Jesus Christ is about to do on the cross in our, in our study. If Christ didn't die for your failures, then what did he die for? Do you think your failures were not added to the list of things that were hung on Christ on that day? For me to say that I am unredeemable, for me to wallow in my failures and so to believe that I am unusable, is for me to make some statements about the finished work of Jesus Christ that I don't think I actually want to make in my conscious mind. It is for me to say implicitly that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was only enough to the extent of this action and that after that point, there is no more forgiveness with God. And if, 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 now we would never say that explicitly, right? Because that simply is not true. If you didn't think you were unredeemable until you failed him, then you were thinking wrong. And if after the failure, you came to the point where now you think you're unredeemable, then you misunderstand Christ. Does that make sense? Either way, if you felt as though up until the point of some unredeemable sin, you were redeemable, then you had a misunderstanding of Christ. (laughs) And if after the unredeemable sin, you now feel unredeemable, you also have a misunderstanding of what Christ did for you. So let me tell you the end of the story. And it is not found in Luke. We're going to jump past Jesus' death We're going to jump past his burial. We're going to jump past his resurrection. We're going to jump past his uh, his arrival in the upper room. And we are going to go to his time in Galilee, where he promised his disciples he would go after he rose from the dead. And he would teach them in Galilee. Over 500 people, Paul testifies in 1 Corinthians 15, saw him when he was in Galilee and testified of his presence and heard him teach. This is found in the book of John. 
Jesus was dead. He has risen from the grave. He's appeared to them in the upper room. Thomas was convinced. Everyone is overwhelmed. Jesus told them he would meet them in Galilee. They go up to the Sea of Galilee, and Peter decides when he gets up to the Sea of Galilee, I go a-fishing. And the other disciples say, sure, we'll join you in that. Peter is no doubt at this point still extremely discouraged. They've seen the risen Lord and all of those things, and yet we'll see from the interaction between Jesus and Peter in a moment that Peter is still extremely discouraged because he has denied the Lord thrice. So the others follow him. There they are, some three and a half years after this journey had begun. They've experienced so much. They've seen so much. They've felt so many emotions. They've learned so much. But now they're back right where they began, on the Sea of Galilee, fishing. Jesus appears to them. They don't recognize him. He asks them if they've caught anything. They answer, no, they've caught nothing. He tells them to cast their their net on the other side of the boat, and so many fish fill the net that they're not able to draw it in. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John, immediately makes the connection, leans over to Peter and says, that is Jesus. And Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to him while the rest row the boat into shore. They follow with the fish. Jesus tells them to bring the fish, to prepare the fish, and to come and dine, he says. So they are eating on the shores of Galilee. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is lying on Jesus' breast. They're fellowshipping. And we read this in John 21, beginning in verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he points to the fish. He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he saith unto him a third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldst not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. So three times Jesus asks Peter a question about his love. Peter, do you love me more than you love these fish? Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. But his answer is not an answer of confidence. Jesus says, feed my lambs. There's an interesting interplay of words here that we find. Uh, We speak of the two words in the New Testament for love. There are three Greek words for love. Only two of them are found in the New Testament. Agape, which is uh, one type of love, and then philos, which is another type of love. Uh, Many people say that agape is like divine love and philos is brotherly love. Indeed, philos does mean that idea of brotherly love. Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. But I actually don't like that classification of love, that agape is uh, the the godlike love and philos is the brotherly love. And the reason why I don't like that is because there are so many times, number one, where those words are used interchangeably. 
And secondly, I don't like it because God regularly uh, uses the, the, the phileo, the philos love, when he talks about loving us. Uh, as I've studied this, I, this is the way I classify them. That agape is a love that is manifest or focused upon sacrifice. Sacrificial love, a love manifest through sacrifice. And that the philos or the phileo love is a love that's manifest in loyalty. So agape is a love that's manifest in sacrifice, or sacrificial love, uh, love that has that heavy sacrificial leaning. And philos or phileo is a love that leans more towards an emphasis of loyalty. And that's how I prefer uh, to think of it. They are often, as I mentioned, used interchangeably in the Bible. The difference between them often carries very little meaning. But here I do believe that there is some meaning uh, that is carried as there's an interchange of words here. So the first two times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He says, Peter, do you agape me? Are you willing to, (laughs) do you love me manifest in sacrifice? And here's why Peter is not confident. Because in the moment of sacrifice, Peter failed, right? Peter failed in the moment of sacrifice. So he says, Lord, you know that I philos, phileo you. You know that I love you, a love manifest in loyalty. That's sort of an idea. Peter responds in a way that says, yes, I love you, but maybe not how I want to love you. He, it's, it's, it's reflecting a very low level of confidence, no confidence, because he has no spiritual confidence in himself. He has failed Christ. He's denied Christ three times. Is he even usable? Well, the last time Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, Jesus uses the same word Peter does. Okay, Peter, do you philos, phileo me? By doing this, I believe Jesus was telling Peter, okay, stop this. Stop playing this. We don't need to be going back and forth here. Stop trying to focus upon the the different kind of love and just answer the question, do you even philos me then? And Peter responds, Lord, you know me better than I know myself. You know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. In other words, you're right. I do know that you love me and you know that I love you. So let's get busy. Let's get back on the horse and let's get back to work. Now, Jesus says this to Peter and then he tells Peter how he would die. He tells Peter, when you're old, when you were young, you girt yourself and you went whither you would. When you're old, another will stretch, you'll stretch forth your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you would not. The idea here, as it was realized in, Christ, uh, in Peter's life is that Peter would die being martyred for the name of Jesus Christ on a cross. And then he finishes with these piercing words to Peter, follow me. So here, the first time, Jesus gave a prophecy to Peter and he says, you will deny me. Peter says, no, I'm not going to do that. Now Jesus says, can I tell you something else about your future? If you follow me, you're going to die a martyr's death. You've told me you love me. Now follow me. 
Peter, the last time I told you you'd be sifted and you denied the fact. You failed. Now I'm telling you there's coming a day where your choice will be to deny me or die. And you're not going to deny me. You're going to choose the martyr's cross instead. I could imagine that the horror of the reality of a martyr's death was in that moment almost overwhelmed in Peter's heart by the joy of knowing that he's been restored to service and the joy of recognizing that in the future he's going to have a choice to make and he will not fail. His humility would preserve him for his testimony. Now it would be impossible for Peter to miss the significance of Jesus having asked three times whether he, Peter loved him, seeing as though Peter had denied Christ three times, and we do see this, this significance. Three times Christ deny, was denied. Three times Christ asks Peter whether he loves him. But I have given you all of this to remind you that at the end of the great questioning, Jesus' words were not, you have failed, you are unusable, go do the best you can. It was, follow me. Peter had been humbled. He knew what it was now to be sifted and tempted by Satan. He knew why watching in prayer was so important. Peter, humbler, more stable, suffered the reality of spiritual favor, uh, failure, is now ready to follow Christ all the more for it. And such is our privilege as well. I don't know what kinds of failures you may have experienced in your days. Perhaps your pre-Christ days, perhaps your post-Christ, post-gospel days. But I know this, that Jesus died on the cross for them. And I know that if Jesus could not use flawed people, we would all be unusable. Indeed, we'd all be in deep trouble. And I know that when Peter failed and denied Christ three times, Christ used this failure rather as a means by which to hold something over Peter's head to say, remember what you did last time. Christ used this failure as a springboard for Peter's ministry with a renewed determination that next time he would not fail and that there was coming a day that when faced with death, he would stand for Christ and he would overcome. Such is our opportunity as well. The failures in our lives could hold us down, but in doing so, again, I believe it's selfish. We think far too much of ourselves if we think that our failures can <laughs> hold God back from using us. Now, again, there are consequences. Certain people, they fail. They, 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 they lose opportunities to have certain positions in the church. Uh, they might lose opportunities to have a testimony among certain people groups, uh, maybe among your family. There are certain people that they've just been so wretched um, that as a believer, whatever the case may be, that they simply have no testimony among their family. They have lost a ministry opportunity because of their poor testimony, because of their failures. That may never be able to be redeemed. Those things can happen, but... Your failures in life can be the seeds of your future spiritual success. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is so great, his sacrifice on the cross so complete, the failures in this life, failures that feel us with the deepest sense of uselessness for the kingdom can instead be turned by God, by Christ, by the Spirit of God who is within us into the very impulses by which we are able to serve God better in the latter end. Now, does that mean failure is a good thing? No, it does not. And to whatever degree you have not fallen into failure, you should thank God and you should not seek for it. The idea is not I go to fail in order that I can uh, identify with, fail, with those who fail. Don't do that. But because there are consequences to failing, right? There are consequences to spiritual failure. But let us trust the promise of God. It's a familiar verse in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God can take your failures and turn them into victories in the latter end. God can give you beauty for ashes. You are still usable. You are still valuable. It is for you, for your failures, for those things you have done that Christ died. And I guarantee you his blood is sufficient to cover it. We are all called to associate. We are all called to obey. In this life, there is the greatest of blessing to those who do so. I hope that my words of encouragement this evening have not romanticized failure. I don't want to romanticize failure. I think sometimes in church, in order to make people feel better and to feel usable, we romanticize failure. I don't want to do that. I hope I have not. I hope I have not taken away the, your fear of failure, your, your, the sting of failure. Paul lived under the fear of failure, not in a, in a binding way, but just in a healthy way. But I do hope that to anyone here that has felt as though your choices, whether recent or, 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 or past, have made you unusable, that you would be reminded that this simply is not true. It is for your sin that Christ died. It is for your failures that Christ did his great work on the cross and rose again in victory. And we are more than conquerors through him.